Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The markets got clobbered again today. Pretty much everything was lower with the lone exception of the U.S. dollar. You know, U.S. dollar index is back above 94. We're about 94.40. And remember, not too long ago, we actually traded below 92 in the U.S. dollar. I think the low, I remember, was around 91.75. And since then, we've had a pretty decent counter trend rally. In fact, even the Japanese yen, which typically rises when people are looking for safe havens. Even the yen was down today as people were buying the dollar. You know, not even the bond market managed to rally in the face of a very weak stock market and a strong dollar. I mean, normally when you get another major drop in the risk assets, people typically seek out the safe haven assets, which a lot of people falsely consider U.S. Treasuries to be. And the fact that they're wrong is immaterial. What's important is that a lot of people have made this mistake and have gone into the market. So it becomes a self-perpetuating spiral, except it didn't spiral at all today. Now, the bond market wasn't down substantially. Yields only backed up a little bit. But what's significant is not that bonds didn't fall substantially. It's that they failed to rise at all which is what you would expect on a weekday in the market. In fact, I talked about the weakness in the stock market on Monday, and we had this big rally into the close because at the lows, the Dow was down about 940 points, and it only closed down about 500. And that late rally led a lot of people to believe that, oh, that was it. The correction was over. You know, we got the buyers coming in near the end of the market, and that was a good sign. To me, that was a bad sign. A better sign would have been to flush everybody out. The fact that you had people coming into the market because they thought the coast was clear and that the worst was over, to me, was a false sense of confidence that I thought would ultimately be exposed. And that's what happened. You know, we did have a follow through rally on Tuesday. And this morning, we got a follow-through to that follow-through. The market started the day higher, but then ended the days right near the lows. The Dow down 525 points. In fact, we're now, I think, within about 50 points of the low that we traded to on Monday. So we've surrendered almost all of that late-day recovery on Monday. And of course, we've surrendered all of the rally from Tuesday and all of the rally from this morning uh, to come all the way back down there. The market looks very weak. The biggest losers today were the tech stocks. The NASDAQ was down uh, 3% on the day, although you know we're not below Monday's low, but that low looks like it is in jeopardy. 
The Russell 2000, though, in contrast, which was also down 3% today, as I said on my last podcast, this is the weakest of the indexes. And I said that the chart looked weakest of all. The Russell 2000 actually closed below its Monday low. That's how weak this index looks. And I think it's going to get beaten up even more. In fact, if you look at the the Russell, it's now down 13% on the year. Right, that makes it the weakest of uh, the four averages. Uh, the Dow down 6.2%. The S&P is still slightly positive. I mean, not even two-tenths of 1%. So it's pretty much unchanged. The only real gain is in the NASDAQ, which is still up 18.5% on the year, if you can believe that. Uh, and it's down 13%, by the way, from the high earlier this month. But the only reason it is up 18.5% is because you have a handful of bubble stocks that have gotten more bubblicious uh, over the last few months. I mean, that's what's driving the NASDAQ. You take out this handful of stocks and it's a completely different story. The question is, how much longer is it going to be before the air comes gushing out of that bubble? One sector that was particularly hard hit again were the financials. I talked about the weakness building up in the financials on the last podcast. One in particular, Wells Fargo, was down about 3.5% today. Wells Fargo is now down 60% from its peak price. And if you look at the chart, it looks like it's headed a lot lower from here. And in fact, when it rains, it pours with respect to Wells Fargo. Its CEO got himself into hot water first by telling the truth and then second by having to apologize for telling the truth. Of course, he didn't have to apologize for it. I mean, he was shamed into it by the political correct crowd, right? The the Black Lives Matter guys. Uh, He made a statement that was totally true, not in the least bit racist, but it pissed off all of the race baiters. And of course, he had to fall on bended knee and beg their forgiveness by apologizing. Let me read the tweet that he sent out that he had to apologize for, right? Or this is what he said, maybe. And this is, I'm reading it on a tweet uh, from NBC News. This is the CEO of Wells Fargo. He said, while it might sound like an excuse The unfortunate reality is that there is a very limited pool of black talent to recruit from. And what he was responding to was the allegation that Wells Fargo was racist, that their hiring policies were racist. And the proof that they're racist is that they don't have enough black employees at Wells Fargo, right? Now, What the CEO is basically doing is defending the bank by saying, look, we're not racist. That's not the reason that we don't have as many black employees as there are blacks in the overall population. He said it's the talent pool that we're drawing from. That is the problem. We are hiring qualified black applicants in the correct proportions that they exist in the pool that we're recruiting from, but it's not our fault if they're not in the pool, right? You're saying we're not catching fish that aren't even in our pond. We can't catch the fish that aren't in the pond. Now, of course, by telling the truth that there simply aren't enough qualified black applicants for Wells Fargo to meet their goal of the number of black applicants they want to hire, This is what has outraged the political correct class. How dare you have the nerve to come out and say the truth? And so what happened is rather than defend his truthful statement and the conduct of Wells Fargo, this is what he said today. I'm reading the tweet that did come from Charlie Scharf, the Wells Fargo CEO. He wrote, quote, I'm sorry my comment has been misinterpreted. The financial industry and our company do not reflect the diversity of our population. We at Wells Fargo are committed to driving change and improving diversity and inclusion. Sure, that's what they want to do, but you can't expect Wells Fargo to hire people who are not qualified for the job. They're basically saying we're making an effort to recruit black employees. We just haven't been able to find as many as we want who have applied for jobs 
who are qualified to fill the positions that they've applied to. Now, apparently that's not enough, right? Because what this crowd wants is for Wells Fargo to hire black applicants, even if they're not qualified, even if they're not able to do the job that they're going to be hired to do, they should hire them anyway, right? So in other words, we should have a bunch of token blacks working at Wells Fargo, because if they're not really qualified for the job, Wells Fargo is going to have to hire somebody else to do the job that they're not qualified for. So why are they being hired? Just to be there? Just so Wells Fargo can say, hey, look, we've got these black employees. The problem is, why is the talent pool so shallow? Why aren't there more blacks in that pool? Why aren't they qualified for these positions? That's not Wells Fargo's fault. Wells Fargo is not responsible for the people who apply for their jobs or their qualifications for the jobs that they're looking to fill. No. Instead, why doesn't the African-American community accept some responsibility for their failure to prepare people to qualify for these positions? Why don't they blame the public school system for its failure to educate people to the point where they're qualified for these jobs? But now Wells Fargo has to pretend that none of this exists. They have to apologize when they've done nothing wrong to appease a mob and just commit to hiring more black applicants, even if those applicants are not qualified for the jobs that they're hiring to perform. How is this good for American industry? It's not. How is this good for the American economy? It's not. How is this actually good for African-Americans? It's not. It's bad for everybody. And it's going to lead to a less efficient, less productive economy that will ultimately end up hurting everybody. And if you want to send out a message to African-Americans, hey, you don't have to be qualified for a job. Just rely on your blackness. You don't have to do what it takes to actually prepare for a job. Just expect to get hired simply because you're black. What kind of message is that sending? That is a very counterproductive message And the problem is not with Wells Fargo for telling the truth, but the problem lies with the African-American community for not acknowledging the truth and being a little bit more self-reflective instead of just blaming other people for problems that they're creating. And of course, not just stocks that went down today, but gold and silver getting hammered again for the second time this week. Uh, They were down actually a little bit yesterday as well, but nothing like what we saw on Monday or what we saw again today. Gold prices down almost $40, call it $40 on the day. Silver down even more, down about $1.60. In fact, if you now look at the decline we've seen in these metals, gold is now down about 10% from its high this year, its all-time record high. And silver is off about 23%, technically putting it into a bear market if you want to count anything more than 20% as a bear market. The gold and silver mining stocks, they're almost there. The GDX is now down 18% from its high this year. The GDXJ, which are the juniors, that index is now down 19.5%. So it's a pretty good uh, possibility that both these indexes will officially be in bear market territory before the end of the week, maybe even by tomorrow. Personally, though, I don't think there's a lot more to go to the downside in gold and silver. I said on Monday that I thought we had a little bit of room to fall for some follow-through, but I do expect some significant buying to come in. But clearly, there is a lot of hot money in the market, and it's not that that hot money hasn't found its way into the gold and silver market. You know, I have a lot of clients that email me uh, and I see questions on my social media. Hey, why is gold down so much today? Why is silver down so much today? And there's going to be a lot of short-term volatility in any market when you have the amount of hot money in the markets that we have today, thanks to the Federal Reserve. Speculative money is very cheap to come by. So there's a lot of it uh, being invested. And the thing about the mining stocks is a lot of the bigger money that is being invested, you know, this isn't high conviction money. These aren't people who have been in these gold stocks for years or maybe a decade or more and who understand the end game. 
this is hot money that has been attracted to the sector simply because it's done so well recently. And so when Accessor does well, it tends to attract more hot money that wants to jump on the trend, hoping to uh, you know get some profits. And remember, a lot of these guys are trading on leverage and a lot of times it's other people's money. So they have a lot of incentives if they really think a market is hot. It's kind of like, you know, if you're in a casino and there's a crap table and everybody's excited, everybody's making noise uh, because, you know, you got a hot shooter and everybody's winning. Well, then people tend to leave the other crap tables and join that one because they want to get in on that action. So I do think that happened to an extent in the mining sector and in the gold space. And so whenever there's a downturn, it gets exaggerated. But again, I think it's a bullish indicator that you don't have that much conviction on the part of a lot of these longs. I mean, they're very scared. I think there's more fear in the gold market, certainly in the mining stock market, than there is greed. And I think that simply reflects the wall of worry that this bull market continues to climb because I don't think there's ever been a fundamental backdrop that has been stronger for gold and silver. As far as the outlook and how high these prices are ultimately going to go, we've never really been in a period of time where the outlook has been more bullish. Yet despite how bullish the outlook is, you don't have that sentiment shared by investors. They're more nervous. They're worried. They've got one foot out the door eventually that's going to change. I mean, we've had a very strong market despite all the backing and filling, right? We've had a nice uptrend in these stocks for several years, but that's with the buyers not really being that bullish. Imagine what's going to happen in this market when the buyers become full-blown bulls. I mean, like me, when they have some conviction behind this trade and they're not so scared of every downturn when they're looking for any slight downturn as a buying opportunity. Like when we get the same type of conviction in the mining stocks that we have in some of these tech stocks, right, which barely have any corrections because there's so much money on the sidelines waiting to come in. We don't have that yet in gold and silver. We certainly don't have it yet in the mining sector, but it's coming. It's going to be there, but it's down the line. And I think it's going to happen at significantly higher prices than those that exist today. So in the meantime, just take advantage of uh, their uh, lack of understanding and their fear, their nervousness uh, behind their, their positions. And when they're selling, you buy. You know, just use these dips as buying opportunities. Don't worry if the dips get bigger and the buying opportunities get better. Doesn't matter so long as you take advantage of one of them, even if somebody else gets a better buy than you, what difference does it make? All that matters is that you get a good buy and don't worry if somebody else gets a better buy. Now, what is driving this sell-off is exactly what I put my finger on on my podcast on Monday. And in fact, I touched on it again on my podcast on Friday. And it is this growing consensus that the Fed is done as far as additional monetary stimulus, at least for now, right? The Fed has made it clear. And again, you had uh, Powell testifying today and yesterday, along with Mnuchin uh, in front of Congress. And Powell had plenty of opportunity uh, to indicate that the cavalry, the Fed cavalry was riding to the rescue right now with saddlebags full of money, right, for the people if Powell wanted to indicate that this was coming, he had the opportunity, but he did not. He also did not indicate that that was coming last week in the Q&A following uh, the Fed's official announcement. That is what the markets want. The markets want to know that more money is coming now, not just the more money that the Fed is already committed to, but the markets want an even bigger commitment. Again, you've got a bunch of drug addicts that need more drugs than the drugs that they already have. That is the problem. The market is so high on the drugs that the Fed has already supplied that in order to stay high, the market needs more. And right now, it looks like they're not going to get it. Now, I think the market is wrong. In fact, I think the Fed is actually going to be much easier. Money is going to be much looser as far as monetary policy than almost anybody believes. 
But I do believe that the market may be correct in that the additional easing may be delayed, right? The market wants instant gratification, not delayed gratification. And right now they're not getting it. And so the markets are having a tantrum. And you're seeing that as the markets are going down. Now, the reason uh, that the Fed is not, you know, stepping up to the plate is because the Fed made clear, right? Powell let everybody know that the Fed is on hold for additional monetary stimulus waiting for Congress to pass additional fiscal stimulus. In fact, Powell has come out and endorsed additional fiscal stimulus, which I think is a bad move and is actually unprecedented for a central banker to basically be telling Congress, run bigger deficits. The economy needs more deficit spending, so run bigger deficits, we got your back. Whatever money you want to spend, right, whatever you want to borrow, the Fed's going to pay for it, right? The Fed is already committed to doing that, but apparently that commitment isn't enough because it's not as certain and it's not as immediate, and that is what the market needs. I mean, the reality is gold and silver are going down and gold stocks are going down, but gold and silver don't need the Fed to commit to even more aggressive monetary policy than what it's already committed to. What it's already committed to is more than enough to send gold and silver prices substantially higher than they are right now. It's a different story for the stock market. They need more stimulus to justify an even bigger stock market bubble than the bubble we have right now. So as I said earlier, I think the markets are wrong in thinking that the Fed is not gonna deliver more stimulus, they will, but to the extent that they're right, at least in the short run, this is much worse news for the stock market than it is for the gold market. Because the stock market, being as overvalued as it is, is far more dependent on that stimulus. Not only the stimulus we have, but the additional stimulus that the market needs. The stock market is far more addicted to it and dependent on it than the gold market or the silver market. So if you're worried that we're not going to get more stimulus, you shouldn't be selling gold and silver. You should be selling the NASDAQ, right? Or the S&P. That's what should be being sold. Now it is being sold, but not nearly as aggressively as they're selling off the mining stocks. I think that is going to change. And eventually gold is going to start to draw strength from the weakness in the stock market. And that's because the weakness in the stock market is going to put more monetary stimulus back in play, even if Congress hasn't come up with a fiscal stimulus. And as I said on the last podcast, what's making the markets nervous is that they're worried we're not going to get the fiscal stimulus for the Fed to monetize. You know, one of the um, things that has happened to complicate that is the uh, death of um, Ruth Gader Ginsburg and the prospects of the Republicans replacing her with a conservative justice before the election, right? And now this is another hot topic of political debate that is now taking Congress's attention away from additional stimulus, additional fiscal stimulus that needs to be passed with the support of Congress and then signed by the president. And even though the president has basically signed on to the larger style stimulus that the Democrats want, you know, all this other political noise still puts that stimulus in doubt. And basically what Powell has said is, look, you know, the Fed is here. We are going to provide all the extra monetary stimulus required to pay for any fiscal stimulus that gets passed. And we are hoping that it gets passed. We want fiscal stimulus. We want the government to run bigger deficits. And we're telling you up front to make it easier politically we will monetize them. We will print whatever it takes so that you can spend whatever you legislate you want to spend. But what Powell is saying is absent that stimulus, if we don't get additional fiscal stimulus, then the Fed's not going to do anything. I mean, more than what it's already committed, which is to monetize the deficits we already have and to keep interest rates at zero now until 2024. I mean, that's already a big commitment, but the Fed is saying we're not going to do any more unless we get the government to run larger deficits because that's what we want to monetize, right? Because they want to pretend that somehow this helps Main Street 
when in fact it only helps Wall Street, but they can pretend that it's aimed at Main Street if it's designed to fund a program that is targeting Main Street, as opposed to just buying up uh, more corporate bonds or junk bonds or whatever they're doing to specifically prop up the stock market. But as I said, if the stock market keeps on falling the way it is, then Powell's going to be singing a different tune. Because it doesn't matter for all the denial about that there's a stock market bubble or for all the comments that the Fed wants to make that it's not targeting Wall Street, it's just Main Street, and it's not worried about the stock market. If the stock market falls enough, then the Fed is going to worry and the Fed is going to come to the rescue. And in fact, the more the stock market goes down without the Fed stepping up, the more dangerous the stock market becomes because then some of the people in the stock market begin to doubt the existence of the uh, Powell put. And then they have to press the envelope even further to see where that strike price is. How much more can the market fall before the Fed comes into play? Which again is why I said that at some point as the market weakens, that weakness in stocks starts to become strength in gold and gold stocks because now the gold investors begin to anticipate the monetary stimulus that is coming to save the stock market and start discounting that into the price of gold and the price of gold stocks, which again is why I think the current weakness in the gold stocks is just a buying opportunity. Do I think it's a buying opportunity to buy the weakness in the U.S. stock market? No, not when you can buy gold stocks instead or not when you can buy foreign stocks instead because whatever the Fed has to do to rescue the U.S. stock market, and though it may work and it's worked in the past, it's far more bullish for gold and silver and those mining stocks. It's far more bullish for foreign stocks than it is for the U.S. So I would ignore the dip in the U.S. stock market because there's better buying opportunities in the foreign markets and the gold markets, which are also dipping in sympathy with the U.S. market, again, based on the belief, the false belief, that the Fed is not going to be providing enough monetary stimulus. It's going to be providing more than enough. The problem is the monetary stimulus actually sedates the real economy. All that it stimulates is inflation and the collapse of the dollar. And when you understand that, then you understand how to invest. I mentioned a bit earlier the fact that Powell was testifying before Congress. And what are the interesting aspects of it? And you can see this if you you know, go back and look at the questions that he's asked, particularly by Republicans. The Republicans want to continuously get Powell on record as talking about how great the economy was before COVID, right? We had this great economy. We had this booming economy. Isn't that correct? Wasn't it great? And, and Powell basically responds in the affirmative. Yes, everything was great. It was booming. It was really, really good, right? And the reason that Congress wants to get Powell to admit that, or at least the Republicans, is because they want to draw attention to how great the economy supposedly was before COVID screwed it up, because they want to credit that economic boom to Trump and to Republican policies. And then they want to lay the blame for the failure of the economy to recover on the Democrats, particularly Democratic governors in these states uh, that have been slow to reopen their economies. And while you know I don't want to uh, take any of the blame away uh, from the Democrats, there's plenty of blame to go around. I think everybody in Washington is complicit. But I deny that the economy was great before COVID. In fact, what nobody seems to point out, certainly not uh, Powell, but before COVID came around, remember, nobody was talking about COVID until 2020, right? Early 2020. And the markets really fell out of bed in March of 2020. But the Fed reversed course on rates in 2019. Long before there was COVID, the Fed started cutting interest rates. In fact, I think we had three rate cuts before 2020. And in 2019, that's when the Fed went back to quantitative easing, although they didn't admit it. Remember, they said it was not QE, 
but of course it was QE. They officially acknowledged it as QE when they when they ramped it up in March of this year, but they started doing it last year. So if the Fed was doing QE and cutting interest rates in 2019, how strong could the economy have been in 2019 when it needed so much support from the Fed? It was basically on life support from the Fed. And now Powell is talking about how strong the economy was, how vibrant the economy was. Clearly, that's not the case. But this is all about politics and trying to pretend that a bubble was strong. The reason the economy is so vulnerable, right, or was so vulnerable to COVID-19, the reason the decline has been so great is because the economy was so weak leading up to COVID-19. If we actually had a strong economy instead of a bubble, uh, COVID wouldn't have pricked it. And, you know, people still don't seem to understand the severity of this problem. I was watching on CNBC today and they were interviewing Damon John. You know, he's one of the sharks from Shark Tank. And they were talking to him about a lot of topics. But in particular, they asked about PPP and they said, you know, uh, Damon, do we need another PPP program? Which, of course, we need another one of those like we need a hole in the head. It was just a cesspool of fraud. But Damon's response was, absolutely, we need one right away. And what Damon said is, look, small businesses are the backbone of America, and they're in a lot of trouble, which is true. They are in a lot of trouble. You know, you can even see that in in the Russell 2000, but most small businesses aren't even large enough to be included in the Russell 2000. So if the Russell 2000 is having that much trouble, imagine all the companies that are far too small uh, to be public in the first place and to be trading you know, in the Russell 2000. But uh, Damon was saying, these small business owners, these guys have been paying taxes their entire lives. This is when they need government. Government needs to step up and help because now these small businesses are in a position where they really need help. They've been doing it right all these years. They've been paying their taxes and now they need to get something back. But the problem is the government doesn't have anything to give back. That's what Damon doesn't get. All the taxes that these small business owners paid in the past, that money's been spent. That money's been wasted. You see, if American small business didn't have all these taxes to pay, if they didn't have all these regulations that are so expensive to comply with, these businesses would be in much better shape today to handle COVID-19. That is the problem. It's because when times were good, they got taxed and regulated to the point that they weren't prepared for when times were bad. And also, a lot of these companies have a lot of debt specifically because they were induced into going into debt by the Fed, by the Fed keeping interest rates artificially low. uh, A lot of debt was taken on that wouldn't have been taken on had the Fed allowed markets to set a, a normal rate of interest. And so the government encouraged all these small businesses to lever up. At the same time, it loaded them up with taxes and regulations that minimized their profits over the years and therefore made it harder for them to build up a reserve that they can draw on in bad times. So now Damon wants all these small businesses to draw on the government's reserve because they have no reserves of their own. The problem is the government doesn't have a reserve either. The government is even more deeply in debt than any of these small businesses, right? The government is the biggest debtor of them all. So how is the biggest debtor of them all supposed to help out people that have even less debt? They can't. Now, of course, Damon thinks, well, they just have to print money, right? That's all that we have to do. Everybody can be helped as long as we print money and give it out. But it doesn't work that way, right? There is no free lunch. That doesn't solve the problem. That just takes the problem that we already have and makes it much, much worse. What uh, Damon should be concerned about is why are these small businesses in such bad shape in the first place? Why is it that they're all on the edge of collapse? You know, it's not COVID-19, right? It's COVID-19 exposed the, the weakness in American business that these businesses are so flimsy, they're so lovered up with debt, they lack any kind of reserve that if anything bad happens, even if it's a pretty bad thing, but they can't withstand it. 
and the individuals, individual American uh, consumers or employees, they're in the same bad financial shape as their employers are. Why is that? Why is the whole country on the verge of economic ruin? And why can we believe that the government could save us from ruin simply by printing money? That, that, that can't happen. You know, kind of the same topic came up. I did this debate earlier today. I'm not sure when it's going to be aired. It was RT Crosstalk. And it was like, a I don't know, I was on for like 20 minutes or half hour, although there's some commercials. And I was basically debating this Marxist, communist, whatever he wants to call himself. Uh, but, you know, we both agreed that the economy is in a lot of trouble. And that we don't have a recovery, you know, the, they keep wanting to try to figure out, you know, is it a V, is it an L, is it a K? I mean, what kind of letter do they want to use to describe the recovery? And my point was, you know, I have an argument with just calling it a recovery. I don't think it's a recovery at all. So forget about what letter it is. It's not even a recovery. Yeah, there's a bounce off the lows, but so what? We had a huge collapse and then we get a dead cat bounce and it's going to be followed by a relapse. Uh, but recovering from a severe recession to a normal recession is not a recovery. And of course, we're going to go right back into a severe recession. Ultimately, none of this is recession. It all smacks of depression. It's going to be an inflationary depression. But the point is, this communist who I was arguing with, he's got all this ammunition, or at least he thinks he does, to prove that capitalism doesn't work. He kept talking about how capitalism just makes the rich richer and the poor poorer. And every time I try to point out that we don't have capitalism and it's unfair to blame capitalism for problems created by socialism, by government, this guy is having none of that. He keeps trying to claim that my version of capitalism is a fantasy, that we've never actually had that type of capitalism. Meanwhile, he ignores the 19th century he ignores a good part of the 20th century where we had not pure, perfect capitalism, but we had we were far closer to it than we are now. That's why the United States became the wealthiest country in the world, because we had the most capitalism in the world. We had the freest people. We had the smallest government. Did we have anarchy? Did we have no government? No. We had some government. It was minimal. And because we minimized government, we maximized economic growth and prosperity. What this guy is clueless about is that what he wants is pure fantasy. His idea of some kind of Marxist communist utopia. I mean, he basically said we need to redo this whole thing. We need to take the means of production away from the business owners who are exploiting people. We need to collectively decide, you know, what we're going to produce, how we're going to make it. We need to have a more equitable distribution of the income and the wealth. We can't just have these rich capitalist employers uh, doing this. We need we need to do it collectively through through the government, right? He's describing exactly what the, all the communists that have taken over every country have always promised, right? This, this utopia that's going to follow a more equitable distribution of the wealth and the income when the government does it instead of the mean uh, capitalist free market, right? That's the fantasy because that's never happened in reality. But because the government has interfered so much in capitalism, we have given capitalism such a bad name that we have now have fertile soil to grow socialism, right? This is what is growing now. We have discredited capitalism by not practicing it, but pretending to. And now we have opened up the door for these ridiculous socialists to come back with these arguments that have been proven over and over again not to work. And now we actually open up the door and give them an opportunity to try this nonsense again. And so this is what's happening, because I agree, the country is a mess, businesses are a mess, but the government can't help. The government is the reason that it's so messed up. The government is the reason that everybody is broke. And the government doesn't have anything other than a printing press. And the printing press isn't gonna create wealth for anybody. See, the only thing that's gonna create wealth the only thing that is going to make real wages go up is increased productivity. We can't consume more unless we produce more. Well, how are we going to produce more by printing money? We're not. We're only going to produce more if the government gets out of the way because the government doesn't produce anything. All the government does 
is make it harder for the people who do produce to do it. So we need less government. We need fewer regulations, lower taxes, but we're not getting any of that. We're getting more government. We're getting more money printing. We're getting a bigger central bank. Now I realize, see, when I tell this guy in the debate, we need more savings and less spending, but how can we do that? How are people supposed to save? They've got nothing. Yes, I get it. We're in a tough spot. But just because we're in a tough spot doesn't mean we can keep spending money that we don't have. We can keep going deeper into debt when we're already loaded up with debt. That's why the economy is in so much trouble. The solution can't be to do more of what got us into trouble. We've got to do the opposite. Yes, I know it's painful to do it. It would have been less painful had we done it 10 years ago, and it would have been even less painful than if we did it 20 years ago but we never want to deal with that pain. So we kick the can down the road every time we catch up to it. But every time we do that, we guarantee that the next time we have a decision between taking the pain or kicking the can down the road, we're deciding between even more pain. And so then it makes it even more likely that we kick the can down the road until we get to the point where the can can't be kicked, which is where we are, right? You break your foot when you try to kick this can because it's, it's too big now from all the other can kicking. So we've got to deal with it. I want to deal with it from the free market perspective. I want to use this crisis to condemn the socialism that has crept into capitalism and argue for a return to limited government sound money. But the left wants to use this to completely discredit what's left of capitalism and convince the public to go all in uh, on socialism. Also, I forgot to mention how Bitcoin fared uh, with all the selling and not very good. You know, as I am uh, recording this podcast, Bitcoin is below 10,300. So it's still above 10,000. But over the weekend, which is just a few days ago, Bitcoin traded above 11,000. So it has come back down. It hasn't taken out 10,000. In fact, the low that I've seen so far, you know, late this afternoon has been about 10,140-ish is about where it's been. So it's been a bit lower than it is now. But to me, the whole argument that Bitcoin is somehow a non-correlated asset certainly goes out the window uh, relative to the high correlation that it's exhibited uh, this week to pretty much every asset there is, right? Everything went down, including Bitcoin. But while I do expect there to be a lot of buying to come back into the gold market and the silver market, that may not happen with, with Bitcoin. I mean, it could, uh, but one of these days it won't because it is a bigger bubble than any of these individual stocks in the NASDAQ. The whole thing is hype. In fact, I am going to be doing a Bitcoin debate live next week. It's a free event. It's called the Traders Summit. My talk is on Saturday the 26th. There's actually three days of events going on. And so there's lots of other speakers uh, and, and maybe even different debates. But I'm going to be debating uh, Bitcoin. I think two of the guys that are my opponents, I think, are Mark Yusko and Anthony Pompliano, who I've debated before. I think there's a fourth guy in the panel. I forget who. But I think those guys are the uh, Bitcoin bulls. I'm not sure if the other guy is a Bitcoin bear or if it's going to be three against one, which is fine with me. Uh, I'm happy to take on three uh, Bitcoin bulls simultaneously. In fact, I don't even think that's enough. They may need a few more uh, bulls to try to counteract uh, my arguments, but it, it should be an interesting debate. So you got to go to their website to sign up for that. But I know a lot of the Bitcoin bugs are going to draw false comfort in the fact that gold is also down. So they can point to gold being down and they can say, you see, gold is down. And so Bitcoin is also down, you know, except there were so many pie in the sky forecasts for how high Bitcoin was going to go this year, 20,000, 50,000. I mean, I have some pretty bullish uh, calls for gold, but I don't think it's going to make that kind of gain in that short a period of time. Uh, but the Bitcoin crowd was very, very convinced that we were going to the moon any day. Meantime, now it looks like we may be coming or crashing back down to earth. Again, if Bitcoin really breaks through 10,000 decisively, uh, and maybe that would take a break of 9,000 as well. But I think if we start trading uh, with an 8,000 handle on Bitcoin, which could easily happen and it could happen very quickly, we may never be above 10,000 again. 
you know, people forget that Bitcoin has been trending lower and lower and lower. I mean, not only did we not take out the record high from 2017 in this rally, but we never took out the 2019 high. Remember back in 2019, Bitcoin got about 14,000. We got nowhere near there on this rally. So we have lower highs. This is a bear market that has been ongoing ever since uh, we had that euphoric peak uh, back in December of 2017 when Bitcoin exploded up to 20,000. Interest is nowhere near where it was back then. And as much as everybody wants to deny it, I think that was it. I think that was the top and we're headed a lot lower. I want to finish up the podcast, though. I want to circle back and talk a little bit again about the Supreme Court vacancy and the way the media is covering uh, the Republicans' attempts to fill that vacancy. And um, President Trump is committed to appointing a nominee, and the Senate seems like they're willing to consider and potentially approve Trump's nominee. Now, of course, the Democrats are screaming foul. You guys are a bunch of hypocrites because this is the opposite of what you were saying in 2016 when you said, hey, it's an election year. I know President Obama has appointed somebody, but um, let's let's wait and see what the people say. Let's let's have the election first and, and let the people decide who should pick the next Supreme Court judge. And um, yeah, that's what the Republicans said. And of course, now they're saying the opposite, that no, we should allow the sitting president to pick the Supreme Court justice based on the election we had in 2016. There's no reason to wait for the results of the election in 2020 when we already know what the results were in 2016. The people voted for a Republican president. They voted for a Republican Senate. And so we can have a a Supreme Court nomination and confirm. And the Democrats are right to call out the hypocrisy But I think the Democrats are wrong for even calling the Republicans hypocrites because there's an old saying about people living in glass houses not throwing stones. And the media, too, is guilty of calling out the Republicans but giving the Democrats a pass. I think it's very interesting, and you can find this on YouTube. All of these Democrats who were outraged, outraged by the fact that the Republican Senate was not going to consider Merritt Garland, that they were not going to consider the nomination of Barack Obama. Everybody said Obama was elected to a four-year term. We don't know what the result of the election is going to be, but we don't have to wait for another election. He has four years. There's a vacancy in his four years. He has the right to nominate somebody. The Senate should consider it. It's not fair to the American people that we're a man short or a woman short. We need to have a full Supreme Court. I mean, they were just furious at the Republicans for not having the confirmation hearings. So they're the hypocrites too. They're as much of a hypocrite as the Republicans are. So how is the Democrats, how are they supposed to call out the Republicans for doing exactly what they did? Because they want to hold up their words. They want to show Republicans and what they said. And now they want to ignore the fact that they said the exact opposite. Because if we treat Trump's nominee the way the Democrats demanded that the Republicans treat Obama's nominee, well, then he's going to get confirmed. Now, The problem is the Republicans should have been more honest about their motivation and their intention back in 2016. That is the problem. I mean, they made their own bed by lying and now they have to sleep in it. You know, that is the problem. I mean, politicians lie all the time. I mean, that's their first nature is just to lie. It never occurs to these guys to tell the truth, right? Honesty isn't really even in their vocabulary. So they immediately had the lie. Why didn't the Republicans in 2016 just say, you know, we don't want to confirm this liberal pick. There's an election that's coming up very shortly. And so we're just going to hold off and hope that Trump wins, in which case we'll get a better uh, person nominated to confirm, right? If it was earlier in Barack Obama's term, okay, we're not going to have the country wait three years for another election. Okay, it's early in the term. Uh, you know, we'll consider it. 
But it wasn't. It was late in the term. It was an election year. And the way Supreme Court justices end up on the bench is it's not just about the president picking the nominee. That nominee must be confirmed by the United States Senate. So the U.S. Senate is just as integral to the process as the president. So when you have a Senate of the opposite party of the president and the Senate knows, hey, wait a minute, maybe we'll get some better nominees to choose from if we wait for the result of the election, that's what they should have said. They shouldn't have said, no, we have to let the people decide. They should have said, we, we want to give the people a chance to vote to, to vote for a Republican president so we get a more qualified justice who's going to care about the Constitution to consider for confirmation. That would have been more honest. And then there would have been nothing the Democrats could have said that in any way uh, was accusatory with respect to hypocrisy, because they would have been honest. Hey, we have a Democratic president. We're just going to wait for a Republican president. Now they've got one. Now that they've got a Republican president. Why should they wait for another election? Because the next election could only be worse, right? If Trump is reelected, okay, well, no harm, no foul. But what if Trump loses and now there's Biden? Well, now they're going to get a lousy pick. And in fact, what if they lose control of the U.S. Senate? Then they don't even have the ability, right? So while they've got the Senate and while they got the White House, this is when they want to act. This is when they want to get Trump to nominate a justice that they like and that they can confirm. That was not the cards that they were holding on to in 2016. So it's a very different circumstance. And of course, the Democrats would have done the exact same thing. That's all this bullshit. If there was a Republican president in 2016 and the Democrats had the Senate, they would have done exactly what the Republicans did. No question about it. That is the historic precedent. I read off the numbers on my podcast last time that there's been 10 times now in history where you've had a Supreme Court nominee in an election year where the president and the Senate were of different parties and only two of those 10 nominees were confirmed. So what the what the Republicans did in 2016 wasn't unprecedented. It followed the historic precedent. But if you go back and look at the, what was it, 19 times in an election year where uh, there's been a Supreme Court nomination in an election year when the president and the Senate were the same party, 17 of the 19 nominations were confirmed. And in all cases, there was a nomination. So the Republicans are on the right side of this issue. If the Democrats were in the position now that the Republicans are, if Hillary Clinton were president and they had the Senate, you better believe that they would be appointing and confirming a Supreme Court nominee. It wouldn't even be an issue. But so all this is a bunch of BS. It's a bunch of nonsense. It's pure politics. The Republicans are in the right. Uh, they should go forward with this process. It's just that they were wrong in not being honest about what they were doing in 2016. But again, that's how politicians are. Why be honest when you can lie? Well, this is where lies get you, right? But the other problem is the political tension that this is now creating and the additional threats that the Democrats are making with respect to what they're going to do when they get the power, which they're probably going to get. Now they're talking about ending the filibuster, packing the Supreme Court, making District of Columbia a state, making Puerto Rico a state. I mean, easier said than done, but they're talking about really playing dirty in order to really stack the deck against the Republicans. And of course, what they really want to do is stack the deck against freedom. They want to make the government bigger and more powerful so that this collapse that's coming, this complete economic implosion, not only will it be blamed on capitalism, but they'll already have the pieces in play to make government much, much bigger. So big government causes the problem, and then big government is there to claim it's there to clean up the mess without anybody realizing that they're cleaning up their own mess. And rather than cleaning it up, they end up making it far dirtier.